Hello, welcome back to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. Singapore, the UAE, a few other states that basically prove that you can have economic success, you can get rich without liberal democracy. And that's a, a little bit of a new shift over the last 20 years, where I think in the 1990s, it was kind of understood that, well, you need to have liberal values or liberal governance to have liberal markets. And I think that's increasingly no longer the case. So I wanted to set out a really positive kind of aspirational roadmap to make sure that democracies are actually delivering on our promise. I'm Rexon Yu, president of the Asia Group. For our episode today, I am pleased to welcome the Asia Group's own Charles Dunst, who recently published his first book, Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman, a book that's been endorsed by a range of thinkers, policymakers, including Senator Chris Coons, former National Security Advisor General H.R. McMaster, and Admiral James Stavridis. Charles, the Asia Group's Deputy Director of Research and Analytics, is a former foreign correspondent for outlets including the New York Times and The Atlantic. He has traveled and lived widely, reporting from places like Cambodia, Myanmar, Vietnam, Israel, the Palestinian territories, the UAE, Oman, Romania, and Hungary. I don't know how he's found time to live in the United States. <laughs> Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to talk about your experiences and your book. Thanks for having me on. Charles, just give us a snapshot of your background first, this extensive travel, living abroad, overseas. I know you talk, among many things, about having lived in Hungary and places in Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, Hungary was this interesting story when I was an undergrad where my grandparents, my great-grandfather's from what is now Romania, what used to be Austria-Hungary, and I had wanted to, or I wanted to study abroad, I wanted to live abroad, and based on the way my undergrad rules were set up, that if they taught the language at the college, you were, and you didn't speak that language, you then couldn't study in a place that spoke that language. Mm -hmm. And my Spanish was not good enough to justify anywhere. In the Spanish-speaking world, I don't speak Arabic, I don't speak Mandarin, so my options were fairly limited. Yeah. For whatever reason, the courses and the credits transferred best to Hungary, and it worked that I had family connection. My great-grandfather spoke Hungarian, uh, and I ended up being there in 2017, kind of this odd moment uh -huh. where it was right before, I guess, Western media kind of really picked up on Viktor Orban, I remember pitching, I was doing some freelance journals at the time, pitching stuff, and there was a really limited interest. And the only only angle I got was when there was some statement from the U.S. Embassy. But I was there basically when they decided to shut down um, Central European University. So that was in 2017. And then basically, uh, having this journalism background and a graduate undergrad, I said, well, I want to work as a journalist, and I want to work as a journalist abroad. And the advice I got was, well, do you speak a foreign language fluently? I said, no. I speak, you know, maybe... <laughs> A little bit of Spanish, but nothing. I not enough Spanish to be a good journalist in in Mexico or, or in Spain. And the advice I got from a friend who at the time worked at Foreign Policy magazine was said, "Go to Southeast Asia." This was 2018. Southeast Asia had a more kind of open press environment mm -hmm. than it does today, and it's cheap. And I could make a, I could make a living. I'm two hundred. My rent was two hundred dollars a month in, in Phnom Penh. And the advice was go find an English language outlet, go work for them, 
and on the side, do as much freelancing as you can for American or British outlets, mm-hmm. kind of the big, the big names, the New York Times of the world. So I was there for about a year, only worked at this small magazine in Phnom Penh for three months, three-ish months, and ended up pivoting almost full-time to freelance because I had just a lot of opportunities. There were not so many journalists in the region, and what's honestly kind of dispiriting at the same time, but also helpful, was there just there are fewer foreign correspondents in that part of the world than there used to be, where... I'm forgetting his name, but there's an author who wrote a great book about Cambodia maybe 10 years ago, and he was sent there in the 1970s by a local Arkansas newspaper that had just a glut wow. of funds and could yeah. send him to Cambodia, whereas there just are not so many Americans, I think, stationed beyond the big papers, yeah. beyond the New York Times of the world, the Washington Post. So I was able to fill in, fill in a gap. So how did you start to conceive of this book? Where, where did it start? The book is really kind of an odd story, and it came together when I was living in London in 2020, actually. I think my first meeting with my agent was March 15th, 2020, so right before the the whole world shut down. Yeah. Yeah. But basically, I was working at the the London School of Economics as foreign policy think tank, and the this book agent had reached out to kind of very senior folks at the think tank wanting to put together a series on British foreign policy, and that didn't materialize, but someone said, well, Charles is a journalist, go talk to Charles. And we put together a very long proposal, a very academic proposal on the Vietnam War and kind of legacies that no one wanted. Pitched it around to multiple publishers. No one wanted it. And then at some point, maybe a few months into the pandemic, Hotter and Stoughton, which is this, this British publishing house, reached out to my agent and said, well, we want something on autocracy. Mm. We want something that's a more positive kind of forward-leaning case. We, we know what the problem is. We mm-hmm. would like to think about solutions. But the question was, well, could, do you know someone who could do it really fast? And you know someone who could do it for not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And my agent goes, yeah, I've got, just, I've got just the guy. And it was really an interesting experience having basically be l- really lucky, but also have to deliver within a year, which was easier said than done to write a book within a year. So kind of an interesting process. That's exceptional. You wrote a book in a year. Yeah, it was uh, not a lot of sleep. Not a lot of, <laughs> not a lot of weekends and not a lot of sleep. I don't think my family members are thrilled. But the, the title tells the reader as it made clear to me that you are focused on what to do about this challenge, the rise of countries, of leaders, and the growth of apparent support for political systems that have some, if not many or exclusively, non-democratic dimensions, autocracies, dictatorships. There's an attraction to this. And you what I've found really interesting and compelling is you structure the book as a roadmap for those defenders of democracy and of democratic governance, but draw from lessons and best practices, if you will, to a degree, from the whole range of countries. And you know, it seems to me that there's a small number of countries, we were just chatting about this earlier, like Singapore that stand out as notable challenges to democracies. So long-winded way of, of kind of jumping to give us the sort of the first take on what that set of solutions and roadmap looks like. Sure. Well, I think what's so different about the challenge today, maybe compared to the Soviet Union, kind of last great autocratic competitor, is when you talk to people today who've been to Singapore right. or have been to maybe some of the more advanced cities in China or been to Abu Dhabi or Dubai, they come back to wherever they live, whether that's 
Washington, London, New York, Los Angeles, and wonder, well, why does it my city look like that? And I recently was in London for about 10 days doing book-related events, and it was a crowd of about 100 people, mostly center-right kind of parliament staffers. Mm-hmm. And I asked, well, how many of you have been to Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Singapore? And half the crowd raises mm-hmm. their hands. I say, well, how many of you came back to Paris or London or Washington and felt that those kind of autocratic cities worked better? And the same 50 people raised their hands. Yeah. And that, to me, is really emblematic of the kind of problem where certainly Singapore, the UAE, a few other states that basically prove that you can have economic success, you can get rich without liberal democracy. And that's a, a little bit of a new shift over the last 20 years, where I think in the 1990s it was kind of understood that, well, you need to have liberal values or liberal governance to have liberal markets. And I think that's increasingly no longer the case. So I wanted to set out a really positive kind of aspirational roadmap to make sure that democracies are actually delivering on our promise, mm-hmm. that we're living up to basically what we promise to deliver to people in terms of prosperity, in terms of the good life and all that. So I wanted to put out these principles of good governance. So things like trust in government, things like accountability, meritocracy. I looked as well at human capital investment, infrastructure, and probably the chapter in which I've gotten the most questions is immigration. Mm-hmm. And kind of tying and making the case that particularly for for the West, immigration has long been a massive benefit mm-hmm. for us. And, and still, you know, when you talk to or polls show this, when you look at would-be migrants in the developing world, even despite kind of challenges to the U.S. or the U.K., we're still the top destination. The U.S. is still the top preferred destination. And when you think about other ones, it's still all democracies. Mm-hmm. So in terms of those solutions, I looked at things like focusing on future-focused infrastructure rather than basically saying, well, we fix the bridge when it collapses. Well, right. it's... How about we actually lay the internet cables to more rural parts of the country to ensure that everyone kind of has the benefits of internet access? Or we need to invest much more in human capital and take the notion of basically what is a national security-related technology much more seriously. Because right now, if you want to do a PhD in quantum mechanics, you kind of have to not earn a lot of money and scrape by essentially minimum wage during the kind of prime career moments of your, of your life. And I think there are a lot of people for whom that's not affordable. So those were just kind of two of the ones I started with and basically wanted to look at both things that democracies have done well. So Denmark has this great social safety net, and I made this argument, well, it's great, but it's struggling because it doesn't account for the gig economy, mm-hmm. where during COVID, there was a lot of assistance going to companies to prevent companies from firing people. That was the European model. And it worked, but it forgot the 25% of society that are Uber drivers or self-employed or restaurant workers. So I wanted to look at and things we've done well, democracies have done well in the past that we can do better, and also looking at some of the things that maybe a Singapore of the world has done well that I believe democracies with open societies can, can do better. Mm-hmm. To come back to your thesis around the fact that some argue there are societies and individuals, peoples who are prepared to trade greater economic prosperity for perhaps less political openness. You know, that's obviously how many observers of China have viewed the basic bargain. How do you treat China in your book? I look at China from kind of two different perspectives, if that makes sense. Well, first off, I do agree with that framing. I think that has been the kind of social contract for the better part of four or five decades because, and it's understandable, I think, it may be sometimes hard in the West to think about it, but if you are 65 years old in China and you grew up in kind of very impoverished, your life is... 10 times, 100 times better than it was then. It's not hard for me to understand why you might bestow the government that gave you that, that kind of opportunity, some legitimacy. 
So that's kind of one facet. And I also did describe China as a kind of pacing challenge, as a competitor, mm -hmm. in the sense of despite being a one-party autocracy and that, in my mind, hampers innovative capabilities and all that, mm -hmm. China does still innovate. China does invest a lot of money in infrastructure. China is, for many parts of developing Asia and even parts of, I think, developing Africa, developing Latin America, increasingly a model where people do want China's double-digit growth rates. And there is a sense of, well, look at the United States, look at UK, three prime ministers in four months, that type of democracy is just, it's too messy. It's too messy. We want to focus on growth. We want to focus on development. And I think the China, kind of the quote-unquote China model, is something that is similar to, in the Middle East, kind of how people think about the UAE, mm -hmm. or Saudi Arabia, as non-democratic but rich countries. And I think we were talking before, and in Africa, for many people, that model is Rwanda, mm -hmm. an autocracy that has managed to have a government, for lack of a better phrase, that, that works. So I think about China from those two ends of the spectrum, where... I, I think the government is quite solidly in power. I, I think prognostications of, of the CCP's downfall are unwise. And secondarily, because of that, and because of China's ability to spend really a significant amount of money, a significant amount of time on things like education, on things like human capital, on things like infrastructure, that China does pose a challenge, I think, particularly from this model perspective of supplanting the United States and our partners as what developing countries want to be. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you might give us, you know, one or two other examples as you've kind of wandered around the world, you know, looking at systems, right, and the challenges that, you know, as you were writing the book might have surprised you that, okay, that, yeah, I actually need to include X or Y here that you might not have anticipated as you were taking your thesis and saying, okay, I want to lay this out, you know, we're... Was there a surprise or two along the way here? Yeah, I think the most surprising bit for me came up in the trust chapter, where mm. poll after poll shows that the countries with the highest levels of trust in government are almost all autocracies. And certainly some of that is the restricted media environment, the fact that China and you know, the UAE and Saudi Arabia can control people's media diet and basically ensure that negative press is not seeping through. But even still, I think if, if you said, well, 20% of the support is due to the closed media environment, You'd still have numbers of public trust in the 60s or 70s, which doubles that of the United States. It doubles that of Japan. It mm -hmm. doubles that of South Korea. It certainly doubles that of the United Kingdom. And that was the biggest surprise to me, that some of these more functional, kind of quote-unquote functional autocracies like China, like the UAE, like Saudi Arabia, and even Vietnam, post really high levels of public trust in government, with people basically saying, this government has delivered, this government it takes very aggressive public steps to kind of counter corruption, even if those are not always effective, perception for kind of normal citizens, I think, is reality. Mm -hmm. I think we both know Vietnam still has corruption problems, but they take really public action against corruption in a way that helps win over the trust of a corruption-weary public. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was one of the surprising things I thought about, where I would have guessed that, you know, certainly maybe the United States or the United Kingdom are kind of struggling, but maybe Denmark would have really high levels yeah. of social trust. Right. Or even South Korea and Japan. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the case. I think that was the biggest shocker to me in a way that I think is really kind of emblematic of the, the whole challenge of the book, essentially. That's fascinating. It really is. So a different question here, Charles. So the dynamic of innovation and I want to kind of get use that as a bridge to talk a little bit about the private sector. Does the book see differences in societies and if, if you look at autocracies versus democracies on the question of innovation? 
Yeah, I think very much so. It is the most innovative countries in the world that in the top 10 are all democracies with the exception of Singapore and China, which I think is no surprise that mm-hmm. you have those two autocracies being kind of at the top. But even still, most democ- I think Singapore is eight, China is 10 by most rankings. So it still is democracies. So dominated. top seven. Top seven, exactly. Top seven-ish are democracies. And that to me is just indicative of the fact that innovation requires open societies. It requires open debate. And I know we often think about, well, open debate happens in the liberal arts, it happens in politics, mm-hmm. it happens in journalism. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not so necessary to science. But I think that's really not true. I think you do need open debate and open discussion in the sciences and kind of in broader society to allow for the innovations of, say, a Google, which is, of course, an American company created, co-founded by an immigrant. And I think that is also one bit of why America has long been so innovative is if you're the same people who are going to pick up and move to the United States from 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 miles away are the same, are risk takers. And they're the same people who arrive in the United States and study after study shows are more innovative and are more entrepreneurial than mm-hmm. native-born Americans because clearly they're already risk takers so they show up and are willing to right. take additional risks. And that's one massive advantage that the United States has. So there is a difference. I mean, I do think the data does show that democracies are, for the moment, broadly speaking, more innovative than autocracies. But something I said in the book that I want to make clear is this is not a reason to kind of sit back right. and relax and think, well, just because... China, Singapore, the UAE haven't caught up yet doesn't mean they won't. It's very plausible that they could. So those are central governments that could invest a lot of money very rapidly in human capital development in the way that democracies just struggle to do kind of based on complicated politics. So that would be my kind of call to action, even though we're winning right now. Yeah. There's no reason I think we'll be winning forever. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, <laughs> there's never a time to sit on your yeah, laurels. Exactly. And then just a follow-up question, the implication so if you're a corporate executive right and reading the book or a preview of the book right what do you think where are the areas where there are tie-ins and implications for the private sector as you unpack this or merits one way or the other frankly right and i i deliberately say private sector and you know not state-owned Enterprise. I think it cuts both ways for the private sector, where basically this increased competition between democracy and autocracy, and the focus of democracies on basically building our own capabilities on basic technologies and things like semiconductors and all that do present opportunities. And governments are more interested, I think, than they have been in a few years. In terms of private sector engagement, there is more interest in public-private partnerships on kind of whether you want to call it that in terms of very direct ones like Operation Warp Speed or more kind of subsidy-based programs like the CHIPS, mm-hmm. the CHIPS Act and all that, those are opportunities. Those are opportunities for the private sector. Yeah, and in some ways, I'll use a phrase that I heard earlier in, in discussions. This is an area where public policy is shaping or even creating markets. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's an interesting question, too, particularly in the United States, where Americans' data shows the last 10 years or so, five years or so, trust the private sector much more than they trust the government. So there is an opportunity there, I think, for governments to kind of leverage this trust of the private sector, to basically use that to build up their own trust. And I think there's one interesting study that shows when Americans receive really good public service, they turn around and assume that it was private sector mm-hmm. because there's a conception of the government not being, not being fast, not being dynamic, whereas people think of Apple as dynamic or Pfizer as dynamic or whatever. So I think there's an interest there, an ability there to increasingly partner with the government for private sector. So that is an opportunity that not downside, but the struggle is there is, as you can see with the CHIPS Act, there is a little bit of drawing lines Mm -hmm. where there are restrictions of, well, you're going to take U.S. government funds 
to do semiconductor work, you have to kind of limit your semiconductor work in China. And that's something where I think some companies may struggle. It's going to be difficult to figure out, well, we've relied on these Chinese supply chains for a very long time. Do we want to go all in now on the West? Do we want to go all in on the United States? Or do we want to kind of keep our business as it is? Because I think walking that line is going to become increasingly difficult. So there are opportunities, but they're kind of difficult ones, I guess. Charles, any final parting shots, if you will, about the book? I think the only thing I would say about the book, about one of the reasons I'm saying I'm so proud of it, is I really wanted to focus on positive, forward-leaning examples. I know there are lots of books lamenting the problem of democracy or the problem of the rise of autocracy and why people want something different. But I really wanted to spend, you know, 300 pages of a very dense book offering solutions. Uh, and I know people might not agree with all of them, but it's my hope that there are at least some items in this aspirational roadmap that, uh, that people can draw from. I think we all welcome solutions. Too often we just get presented the problems, as you said. So thank you. The book is Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman, authored by Charles Dunst. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Today. Thanks for having me on. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.